Hello and welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth. We are almost done with our current series dedicated to vampires, or as I've been referring to them over the last 18 episodes, the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two, where we contextualize them, try not to thirst too much, and uh, think about what works and what doesn't. And in today's episode, we continue our exploration of the vampire revival of the noughties. First up, we are tackling Neil Jordan's return to the vampire genre with his 2012 film Byzantium, where a mother-daughter vampire duo played by Gemma Artenton and Saoirse Ronan are being pursued by an ancient society of patriarchal vampires. And in the second half of the episode, we discuss arthouse darling Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, a extremely cool, very sad take on The Vampire, starring Tom Hiddleston and the legendary Tilda Swinton as two vampire lovers who lounge around, read books, listen to records, and just generally have a lovely time. I'm joined in this episode by vampire expert, author, scholar, and founding member of the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies, Dr. Sirka Neeline, who also kicked off the series with a deep dive into three very different Dracula adaptations. And this entire vampire season is made possible with the support of Arrow Video, who bring out the very best in cult, horror, and genre films, specialising in definitive home entertainment editions. Their collection now spans more than 500 physical releases and they've just launched the Arrow Player, which is their own streaming service. Throughout this entire season, we are recommending a film that we love from their collection. And this week, in the spirit of Byzantium being a spiritual follow-up to Interview with a Vampire, we pick the much-applauded sequel to the Hitchcock classic Psycho. It's Psycho 2. It's not a very interesting title, but it's a great film. Directed by Richard Franklin, who also made the very fabulous Road Games, and with a script by Tom Holland, who's the director of Fright Night, this is an incredibly effective sequel that sees Norman Bates return to his family home and motel after two decades in a mental institution. If you enjoyed this episode, do consider supporting us on Patreon. We are publishing bonus episodes and full spoilerific discussions of new releases. If you are so inclined and you're able to support us, head over to patreon.com forward slash the final girls. And with all of that said, if you are new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail pretty much from the very beginning. So if you are averse to any conversation about a film that you have not seen yet, do consider this your spoiler warning. And if you really don't mind, please enjoy our deep dive discussion into Byzantium and Only Lovers Left Alive. Sirka, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. How have you been? I've been well, Anna. How have you been? It's been a great series. Uh, thank you. It's been, uh, now that we're coming towards the end of it, it feels like you're almost, there's another episode, there's another few episodes to come, but it almost feels like we started the Vampire series with you and we're kind of finishing it off with you as well. I've come back with a vengeance. <laughs> 
So we're going to be chatting about two quite contemporary um, vampire films. And when I was rewatching them, it felt they felt very like they were speaking to each other in ways that I had not realized even when I paired them together. So uh, I'd like to start with our chat about Byzantium from 2012 first. My story can never be told. I write all I know of it. And then I throw the pages to the wind. My mother lives on human blood and has done for two centuries. There is a code that we survive by, Eleanor. Keep it. Eleanor's written a story. In her story, she says that she lives with vampires. <laughs> she is an aberration. We are a brotherhood. There are no women amongst us. We should not permitted to survive. Close your eyes. There comes a time in life when secrets should be told. You've got secrets, haven't you? I am 16 forever. I walk and the past walks with me. I've followed you for many years. We have to leave. I don't want to lie anymore. I've told you how I live. I'm never merciful. And knowledge is a fatal thing. If you kiss me right now, will I live forever? You've told your little boyfriend all about us, haven't you? No! Forgive me for what I must do. First of all, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the film? Um, this is Neil Jordan's return to vampire stories after, obviously, Interview with a Vampire. What is? When did you first see Byzantium? And did you have kind of expectations of it because of Interview with a Vampire? I saw it. I think I'm trying to remember when I saw it. I think I saw it, weirdly enough, I think I saw it on television, which is very unusual mm. for me. Usually I'd buy things way it's either that or I ended up borrowing a copy I can't remember but anyway I do remember when I saw it I was thinking I had a lot of expectations because Neil Jordan's Interview the Vampire which I know you've covered before but Neil Jordan's Interview the Vampire is so deeply personally important to me because that was my first vampire film that I snuck into in the cinema when I was about 14 and it changed my life. Is There's just no other way to kind of put it. And more so than the novel. The novel I had read and I liked it, but the film just visually gorgeous. They brought it to life. So for me, when you hear Neil Jordan's doing another vampire film, <laughs> your, kind, your mind kind of goes, what? It's like getting the band back together. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> so I, and then it had opened and I missed it. And I don't, I wonder if it's around the time I was moving to the UK, but it had opened and I had missed it. And um, so what, when I, I did catch it, I initially didn't really know what to make of it because mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was very different tonally. Initially, I thought in the first watch, it's very mm -hmm. different. It's got this seaside kind of, uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of Blackpool mixed in with a little bit of Brighton kind of mm -hmm. visual culture. It has a very young Saoirse Ronan, um, who I'd only really heard about through Atonement before that. So I was like, okay. Um, it had an interesting cast, recognisable people, but again, it had just this hodgepodge of slightly different, maybe slightly grittier 
mm. material than you have with the very in comparison with the polished veneer of into the vampire so i was thinking okay this is this is quite different quite different but when i started to get into the the kind of guts of the story i kind of went oh that's incredibly neil jordan that's mm. very it's very much in his sort of style and oeuvre you could really see that um then i started to dig around obviously looking around it and stuff and i discovered it was actually based on a play mm-hmm. and a play i have not seen i must admit i've read around but i haven't i haven't seen it mm-hmm. um and i kind of realized oh this is actually exactly what neil jordan does he takes stories recuperates them in various ways adapts them to the screen and brings his own flavor around authorial voice so it made complete sense that i had through this process of rediscovery Mm. as as an audience member it had become this absolutely quintessential neil jordan text so what about it feels very neil jordan for you for me it's all about telling stories he's he's so interested in recuperating a person's perspective or subjectivity now obviously that's in the dna of this story in the Mm -hmm. case of um in the case of the play as well um and it's obviously in the case in the into the vampire but in his stories you're always getting voices that are just in some ways either snuffed out or bullied out of the public view and you see this in his non-horror texts as well like the brave mm. one for instance and um he he's interested in telling points of view that are difficult sometimes to hear and to uh, take power and to bring it to account I think that's what he's really interested in doing. So he's always making the powerful accountable for their actions because their actions are always inevitably in some way uh, trampling on people underfoot. Mm -hmm. And in this case, he's foregrounding women. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that in Into the Vampire, we get get a very interesting uh, side story of that, of course. But in this film, it feels like a companion piece. The more you watch it, the more you feel it is a, a kind of a, a an Anglo-Irish companion piece to into the vampire's European American male story. So mm. it's uh, I thought it worked very well from that point of perspective. But Jordan, yeah, he uses the visual sumptuousness that you expect of vampirism. He certainly brings in his visual um, identity uh, around our representations of Ireland, Irish mysticism, Irish folklore, uh, and this really enables him to show off all the kind of best parts of his creative flourish for vampirism. So vampirism is very, very rich always when he deals with it. He deals with it in a very exciting, gorgeous way. Let's talk a little bit about the the vampiric duo at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So we've got Clara, who is the, the matriarchal vampire. She's the mother. She's a creator, played by Gemma Ardenton, and Saoirse Ronan, her daughter Eleanor, who is also like you were mentioning before, the voice that is guiding the story and telling their story, not just her own, but also trying to grasp the the backstory and the motivations of her mother. What did you make of, of them as, as our leads and as vampires as well? It's great because they really represent different different perspectives of female vampirism or representations of female vampirism. I mean, looking at Clara, for example, she's someone who has most certainly seen the exploitation of her gender uh, and and has survived really horrific sort of brushes with uh, patriarchal violence, and she's using it for a very strong to serve a very strong impulse of revenge and to take that sense of um, disempowerment and to reverse it back onto those who have caused her pain so you can see that there's this sense of vengeance and fury that drives her mm. where whereas we see with eleanor 
the more sort of um, sympathetic character in the sense that she is doing exactly what those Jordan texts do. She's writing her story and then she tears it up and throws it to the wind and she's trying to tell it. And in, in the telling, it becomes a form of infection. Mm. It becomes a way to spread out the word because once she does eventually successfully tell her story to someone who doesn't die straight away, um, we see that it takes hold and it starts to have consequences and it starts to spread and it actually puts them in danger. And this is exactly what happens in Truth the Vampire when you mm. think of it, you know, it opens and closes with the confession. It is a closed loop, but all of these people along the way get affected by the fact of telling the story, revealing the fact that you're an immortal. I suppose there's no fun of being an immortal if you can't kind of so say it to somebody. <laughs> but it is it is something very powerful in the case of Eleanor because the frustration of trying to tell the story and the consequences of it means that she is constantly caught in this loop where she never fully gets that catharsis. So it's it, I think the two of them work really, really well together because they have that mother-daughter relationship that you have seen in other films where that with Sir Sharon and especially Ladybird. Mm. But you do find that she has this kind of maturity behind this, these really innocent eyes. And it works very well to kind of pair her up with um, uh, Gemma Adderton's really fiery, sometimes grating, sometimes necessarily salty performance. I think mm. it works very, very well. Yeah, I really love the way that they... Um they couldn't really seem to find a common language, even though they were sharing mm -hmm. this immortal life. And, you know, the mother-daughter bond, which which gets a lot more elaborated on and is complicated in the film because of the the situation in which Clara gave birth or, you know, became pregnant with Eleanor and gave, mm -hmm. gave birth to, to her and then how she tried and, and perhaps failed to protect her at certain points, but also then gave you know made her into a vampire mm -hmm. there's there's always a sense of both wanting to protect her and wanting to own her and keep her as a as a child forever mm -hmm. and to keep her as a companion more than have a sense of of responsibility for her daughter i found i i, I genuinely did not remember kind of the the complicated dynamics that unfold between them and it, it's one of the things that really struck me that is kind of an underlying layer of depth to the relationship between them yeah, at times they feel like they're sisters. At times mm. you feel, yes, their mother-daughter relationship. At other times she feels like sort of a wayward aunt mm. to Eleanor. I think Eleanor is more stable mm -hmm. in that relationship, but she's because of her sort of youth and her questioning of everything that's going on around her. But I do think that um, there is this kind of real interesting dynamic interplay between them. It's not a simple question of, you know, you see this in so many narrative films where, you know, someone is cast as the father to a son and you just see it's a very flat relationship. Mm -hmm. No, this is this is what female relationships are. They are interesting and fiery and um renegotiate power and authority and at the same time deeply affectionate and loyal. So you can see exactly why they their interplay and sometimes their very subtle relationship with one another and especially in some scenes it's very subtle you do see that it drives the story forward it's a story that's really mostly interested in women and with men very much as the supporting cast mm. which is interesting because in the even in the in the mythology or the vampire mythology of of the film we're told very explicitly by the male characters of the you know the mm -hmm. vampire society that women are not allowed to be turned and definitely not allowed to quote unquote procreate mm -hmm. i think is the word that they use so what did you make of the 
of the world of vampires as it's built in this film. Yeah, the brethren are an interesting sort, aren't they? Mm. I mean, what struck me straight away, I'm going to slightly fangirl here for a second, <laughs> was um, the shot where you really get this uh, moment really brought home or indeed emphasized is when you see Clara be discussing the, her her acquisition of knowledge mm-hmm. with the brethren mm-hmm. and it's shot in the long room in trinity oh college God, dublin yes. where i did my phd in vampires oh, so <laughs> i was sitting there rather enjoying this you know as a sort of moment because the one thing about the long room is no matter how no matter where you put your camera in the long room it looks amazing mm-hmm. and it's got that smell of knowledge that you get that leather bound book smell that ancient mm-hmm. smell and what i loved in that sequence that very short sequence was a really important one in the film is that her incongruity her sense of being a woman her dress mm-hmm. the way she holds her body the way mm-hmm. she's observed by these males in very uh, austere sort of dress in this world of the written of the written word mm-hmm. she stands out as different because she has stolen the fire of knowledge mm-hmm. and i found that to be just such a brilliantly simple but really effective way of explaining women have always had to fight for their peace for their Mm. access to the same privileges that patriarchal men have had and in this vampire brethren is somewhere between a kind of a covenant of a priesthood so sort of you know a sense of vows to you know to to have a scholarly understanding of knowledge but you know do not engage with women beyond transactionary kind of experience Mm. And at the same time, they don't understand women. Mm-hmm. And that's why they shun them entirely. So Clara's sort of sense of of fair game, as in, you know, I'm going to steal it for myself. I have to protect myself and my child. You do get that feeling then that you're on her side. And it's only a question of uh, seeing it as a sort of a source of vampirism as a feminist uh, ha- ha- holds the keys to the kingdom, I suppose, in terms of feminist liberation mm-hmm. for her. So she uses it that way because it's kind of rotting on the vine, all this immortal possibility. Mm-hmm. It's rotting on the vine uh, with these patriarchal vampire leaders because they're not really doing anything with that ability. Yes. There's also this this element, I think there's an added layer of rejection of her on their part because not only Mm. is she a woman but she's also a sex worker and you know that's not obviously the way that they refer to her in the film but it's also i think there's an underlying classist thing where they Mm. not only see her as beneath them because she's a woman they see her as even below where they see women because she is a sex worker and she is throughout the whole film and i think this makes her so interesting is that she is not just a survivor but she is a hustler she will see opportunities <laughs> and she will seize them and i was wondering kind of what do you think of her in this vein of this idea of a of a woman who chose this forbidden knowledge and this you know eternal life that she she never really quite understood but she instinctively could see that it was a solution for her a lot of her issues she would get power she would get strength she would survive because she was ill at that point about Mm -hmm. to to die 
yeah so she's um the scene i'm thinking of is where she's observing mm-hmm. the males um the the male vampires they're in having a bit of a party at the mm-hmm. brothel and she overhears them talk about this gift and uh, so she steals access to the secret mm-hmm. of, and, and and goes to the island but it, in so doing she sees i think she sees it as two things she sees it as i'm stealing the opportunity to you know, to, to, to give myself some sense of freedom. But I think she also does it as well to just, it's like the hustle. It's the extent of the hustle. It's like, well, you know, uh, he, he was stupid enough to fall asleep. He was stupid enough to get drunk. Um, <laughs> I'm off. You know, and, and what does she have to lose? That's the other thing as well. I mean, if you're, if you disenfranchise any group or any person to the point where they are literally left fighting for themselves, they are going to get to a point where they're going to say, I've nothing left to lose here. So I'm going to literally go for glory. And that's what she does. What's great about it, though, is that the expression of her transformation, when we see that she is transformed, is so powerfully feminine. It's so the, the, this power that the that the brethren seem to, uh, to to secret for hundreds of years. It's actually a really powerful feminine power because that that transformation of the landscape in particular is just it's one of the most striking images in the whole film uh, when we see this space. So and the fact that it it sort of it shows that it should be liberated and free. This 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 access to power that vampirism confers uh, and shouldn't be in the realm of uh, dusty old blokes. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you make of the of the way that actually the transformation and the powers of a vampire are presented in the film because they're probably unlike a lot of what we um through pop culture and through horror cinema understand to be you know the checkpoints of be of becoming and being a vampire i found i suppose the thing i liked about it was that it it it, it did something very different it did something very Maybe I'm wrong in saying this in terms of mythology, but it made me made me think of something awfully Celtic, because there is that transformation of the islands as a sacred sort of space in in Irish culture. So you have um, islands that hold ancient secrets to you know. Um, if you think back, and I'm sorry to kind of go to a different series for a second, but if you look at something like the opening of Star Wars, um, if you look at um, The Force Awakens and even the later films, they all return to that sense of the islands off Kerry. And they do this because that's places where we've actually got, you know, ancient monasteries and relics from, you know, thousands of years. And it, it shows that there's a sense of time in a capsule mm. that you get with these island spaces so it made complete sense to me that and you have it with the blaskets as well off ireland so it made sense to me that neil jordan who hails from sligo again with a very ragged coastline lots of islands he would have this same emotional connection to the idea of the landscape as something that's both completely captivated and captured in time but also expresses change for better or worse in a very visually almost uh, uh sumptuously over imaginative way by having the waters literally turn blood red when someone is transformed i love the fact it goes back to that idea of nature the idea of it of birds uh, you know literally enveloping the, the the person to be transformed i find that very powerful because in some ways when we think of vampirism and transformation, we think back to yeah, Anne Rice, we think back to Dracula, mm-hmm. the bites, the penetration, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. What if it's actually something really secretive within nature itself that you have to kind of just, you know, you have to seek it out and discover it. It's almost like a grail narrative. You know, you have to encounter it in order to then reap the benefit of it. 
I think there's something very ancient about that, very, very seductive. Absolutely. It almost feels like becoming a vampire. Well, there's two things that really struck me. Becoming a vampire seems to be almost an endurance test, you know, Mm -hmm. both physical and spiritual and emotional. You have to climb up that mountain. You have to, you know, uncover or, you know, in the case of Clara, steal the secret knowledge of how to get there, go through all of these tests and, and face what they call in the film the name the nameless saint but also interestingly it's probably one of the very few films that i've seen where becoming a vampire does not involve anyone else Mm -hmm. it's entirely a solitary experience and in fact kind of by design Mm. a spiritual one i would argue Mm -hmm. as well because it's only something it can't be the information can be given to you but you still have to have the courage to go in you still have the courage to go through with whatever um, test you feel you're going to face when you walk into the into the cave. And I thought that was great because it meant that you had you don't have then the bickering and the anger that you get in something like Interview the Vampire, mm-hmm. where it's like you made me because yeah. you felt guilty or because you feel obligated to me or you made me a vampire because you have nobody else mm-hmm. there is there's none of that i mean there's little echoes of that but there's nothing in comparison to the sort of guilt that you get out of the um the oh, interview yeah. the vampire oh. so i thought it was much more empowering in that sense and what did you make of the actual you know the day-to-day of the vampires of byzantium um of you know of their hunt of the way that they kill and and kind of how those those stereotypes i guess or those tropes more that's a better word how those tropes of what being a vampire is like apply in this film well i loved there was there was extensions there was different things that i saw in other jordan films that worked in mm-hmm. this as well and one of the things that struck me was that of course they don't have the fangs so that's a really interesting it, it's a way to kind of make it play out so that it has its own organic sense of puncturing bodies but it doesn't have to always be about sex sex is almost transactional in the film i always felt that it was very much a it's very much a thing you have to do to make money it's not it wasn't really intimate intimacy was conveyed in very different emotional ways i thought but i'm thinking of um eleanor in particular with her really fascinating thumbnail mm-hmm. i really love that thumbnail because of course it immediately made me think um as was put in the book um it really made me think again of Interview the Vampire with Lestat, who has this lovely silver thimble. Yes. And um, and he scrapes it across the face of the young of the young uh, fop at the beginning of the film. And it made me think of that straight away when I watched Byzantium. I went, oh my God, okay. So for men, it's performative and for women, it's organic. That's the first thing I kind of thought of, that the impulse to kill or this, this way to survive, I suppose. Um, so I love that about Eleanor. Funny fact, when they were shooting Byzantium in Dublin, I actually was teaching in UCD at the time uh-huh. and they were using the arts block of UCD to uh for that for the um hospital scenes where she where she kills with the um with her her lovely thumbnail uh-huh. um in this this kind of hospital sequence so so yeah that was kind of interesting because I did remember hearing Neil Jordan's making a movie about vampires I'm like in, in UCD and then I kind of <laughs> realized why if you know UCD it's a very 60s campus very modernist it looks kind of like UEA so I kind of thought that's a very strange choice for a vampire film but there you go so uh it doubles as the hospital in the film but um i i just think that you know with the vampiric transformation it's all about the 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 key transactionary thing in this is not really blood it's knowledge knowledge is a dangerous thing she's told knowledge is dangerous and those who have the knowledge must be killed so this is something that i found really has taken 
centre stage in so many vampire films the last 20 odd years, uh-huh. which is that knowledge of vampires is dangerous. But then not only that, but how you get the knowledge and how you pass it on. That's mm-hmm. that's really where the power of this is. So I, I think for, yes, it stands in for feminism. Yes, it stands in for sort of empowerment beyond sexuality or breaking out of that mold that women are only really represented as vice or as saints. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it works beyond that as well to say that women are complex. Women have their own needs. Women have their own relationships that men cannot control. Mm-hmm. And this is why they confound male societies like the Brethren because... Um, you can't make people conform to your rules when they don't understand you. And and on that note, how do I mean female vampires have have always had a presence in in horror films and it, it, particularly in the seventies where <laughs> uh, lesbian vampires were kind of the the trend du jour in in horror cinema and, and in softcore cinema as well. But this film I find seems to have kind of fallen through the cracks sometimes. Of, in conversations around female vampires on screen so what how do you think it updates or or as you said before kind of foregrounds female vampires in in a way that seems quite unique but also responds to a lot of the the conventions of what we might have seen before so well, I'm doing my best to recuperate this one because I'm actually working on something on Neil Jordan cinema as well. Ooh. So we're with, with Byzantium. So um, what I think what he's doing is it's very clever film when you peel it or peel away the sort of surface material. You kind of see on one level, yes, it's about um, female vampirism, empowerment, emancipation. Absolutely. But what it's also doing is it's taking the issues around class that you see in something when you go as far back as John Polidori's story, The Vampire mm-hmm. from 1819, you see the same sort of um, recoup, you see the same contestation of knowledge and class and power. With the women are taking that from the male patriarchal role um, that we see and, and using it for their own freedom for their own emancipation but that also comes at a price of not to be tamed. Mm-hmm. So what it's doing is it is taking the dichotomy of women as either virgin or as vice and complicating it and showing that women are for various reasons just as frustrated and emotionally angry and at the same time subjectively important as any other male vampire in fiction. I think the fact that we have, yeah, okay, we have these softcore vampires and hammer vampires with their incredible decolletages. We have all of this. But I think that's always in, in it's always in service to the male audience. It's always in service to a sexualized gaze. Mm-hmm. And I think that this film denies you that. It doesn't give you that with the female vampires at all. If anything, the female vampires are basically gaining revenge as you would expect but at the same time they're also rescuing and recuperating people who have also suffered in various ways Mm -hmm. what i really like about the film is that it foregrounds the idea of birthdays as something that are quite tragic Mm -hmm. birthdays are something that document time passing and if you're a vampire it doesn't really matter but if you're human it it, it's one more year Mm -hmm. of documenting either suffering or the lack of celebration. There's, there's an interesting sort of noting of the passing of time through birthdays in that film, I found. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it shows that women are, are, are whole and beautiful and seductive and complex. And that's something that you don't always get in other vampire uh, cinema around female bodies. 
That's such a beautiful statement, Serka. Thank you. And I was wondering if there's, before we move on to Jim Jarmusch's film, is there anything mm-hmm. that we haven't touched upon on Byzantium that you really wanted to talk about? Uh, no, except to say that Johnny Lee Miller is fantastic as a villain, I found in this. <laughs> I thought he was really enjoying every moment of it as Lord Ruven. Um, it's a really, really, as you say, it's an under, perhaps slightly underappreciated film. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth a couple of views. I don't think it necessarily reveals all of its gems on the first viewing, mm-hmm. but it is um, it is very strikingly beautiful. And I think with more watches, you, you start to see and understand how it very much is a, uh, a quintessential Neil Jordan film as well. And on that note, let's move on to Only Lovers Left Alive from 2013. Let's hope he's just romantic. You being so reclusive and everything is probably only going to make people more interested in your music. Yeah. What a drag. Should be sleeping in a coffin somewhere. I'm really, really hungry. Could you smell it all the way from LA? We're gonna have so much fun together. We gotta go right now. Come in. Is that the really good stuff? Precisely. Typo. kind of the same question what is your relationship with with Jim Jarmusch's vampire film uh this was a funny one for me this was Mm -hmm. complex I do remember going to see it and thinking to myself it's very stylish it's Mm -hmm. very pretty Mm -hmm. yeah this is kind of if I could be a vampire today this is exactly what I think I'd like to get up to but I did on the first viewing kind of think well what does it really have to say what does it really have to, f- is it simply that vampirism sort of from form of creativity? And then I kind of sat on it for a while and I kind of gestated over it for a bit. And then when I came back, I kind of thought, actually, on rewatch, it stood up far better. I felt that I was less um, frustrated with the aesthetics because the aesthetics are beautiful, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted some substance as well. But then I started to see that actually it was an interesting counterpoint to other vampire films going on or vampire TV series at that time, it was showing that vampirism is great, but 
you know, it's like sort of the artist's life. You know, it is a beautiful thing. It's a great thing to aim for. But you do kind of wonder, how do they cope with the boredom of it? How do they cope <laughs> with the passing of time? Mm-hmm. And vampires in this are sort of, in some ways, they're almost angelic in the sense that they have these beautiful, creative impulses that either they bestow upon the human world the human world seems to be much less creative than the vampiric world Mm. that sounds great you could spend your entirety the entirety of your time on earth reading books making music um you know having scientific breakthroughs all these things are really exciting but i kind of felt that you know yeah i get the ennui i get the tiredness of it creativity without sort of reception and a little bit of you know um Frisson that doesn't that doesn't really do much if you're just creating in a vacuum and this is exactly where we find Adam um Tom Hiddleston's mm-hmm. very I must admit very vampirically beautiful on screen but um tragic male vampire who is whiling away his time in a, a very sort of desolate and drained Detroit mm. I found that to be quite quite a fitting apt metaphor so there's kind of the eternal issues of the soul and then there's the physical spaces of mm-hmm. these post-industrialist wastelands that we find our vampires are still inhabiting you know um, I mean I definitely want to talk about the spaces because I also found it so mm-hmm. interesting but if if I can I just remembered this was actually the first film that I saw when I moved to London this time around oh, was wow. the first yeah. film that I saw in a cinema at the real cinema in Dalston before I even moved to the to the area. If you've never been to the cinema or if someone's never been to the cinema, it's like a very it's an independent cinema here in Dalston. It's very it's very art deco. It's very campy, slightly dingy, but very beautiful, very ornate the screen itself so it felt like the most perfect environment to watch this film which also feels like slightly over the top very ornate very beautiful and i had not rewatched this film since then and right. when i rewatched it for the purposes of this and i have it on on blu-ray in my house i just had never gone back to it yeah. it felt so interesting to watch it in the context of having spent a year in well basically in lockdown yes (laughs) and you know they they do have the option to go outside and they socialize and all of that so it's not strictly the same but a big chunk of the film is spent especially the time that we spend with adam and Mm -hmm. a little bit of what we see of eve and tangier before they meet is essentially spent in isolation surrounded by things and surrounded by things to entertain them which sometimes work sometimes don't and it's the surrounding themselves with gadgets and with culture, books, records. You know, they don't really have films that much in 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 Only Love yeah. of Her Life. But I suddenly felt I was like, oh, holy shit! This has been literally. I'm just seeing my own lockdown experience reflected through a film from 2013. It's just living in a in an apartment surrounded by increasingly taller, taller, taller piles of books, and. <laughs> I'm liking that. That makes because it's making me think now. Of course, my other half is obsessed with music because he used mm. to work in music production, and I'm obviously always surrounded by books. And I'm just thinking, oh wow, maybe that's that's us then. I didn't realize that projection of it. You know, we're, I'm always surrounded by piles and stacks of books, <laughs> just like herself. So, so in a way, that's kind of a nice parallel. I must, I must say that. Yeah. And, yeah, and listening to you to you speak as well about kind of the how beautiful they are and mm-hmm. how how much they luxuriate in the art of creation and in culture and in these cultural objects. I was suddenly thinking hearing you speak that 
there is a there is a very distinct privilege that they have in this film that I haven't oh, really yeah. seen in other vampire films that don't center so much on the boredom. You know, they center a lot on the kind of the envy, the moral conundrum of I must kill to survive, but I, I will live forever and I will be forever beautiful and I have all of these perks of being a vampire, mm-hmm. but it comes at a cost. And here, you know, we'll get into the, the blood stuff later, but there's the privilege of time for them to be able to create it's not necessarily that they're more talented than any of the humans that they're assisting in the in the creation of culture it's also the fact that they actually do not have to worry about the things that consume humans for so long so they have this you know unearthly privilege of time where they can literally just lounge around and make art and play chess and think about things. Yeah, they also do run on a very, uh, on a different timeline as such. Mm. I mean, for them, it is more luxurious. There is more of the sense of waiting. It's a rejection of the instantaneous culture. Mm -hmm. It's very much about thinking it through and debating and that moral philosophizing, the armchair philosophy that we all used to enjoy yes. in the pre-internet age and now we just Google stuff. But, you know, there was a uh, there was a sense of there's a, lux- a luxury with time. Mm-hmm. And I really think that the film enjoys reminding you of that with its very, incredibly with its things like its swirly camera work. It's got mm-hmm. these lovely tilts and rotations that you see. It's, it's cosmic on one level. It's about kind of yes. pondering the universe and pondering your place within it and the rotation of time. I mm-hmm. it really, that kind of struck me in the opening scene in particular. So we get this sense of, this there's a cyclical nature to all of it you know people come and go the humans live and die and yet these people are almost frozen in time they talk about issues that have happened four or five hundred years ago as though it was last week so they have this long sense of memory but i also think as well as that they feel that they've been through this before and they will survive it and 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 become reinvigorated and and move on you get this sense that they're they're just in that lapse phase of oh i'm a bit tired and a bit jaded from all of this kind of cultural creation Mm -hmm. and this worry that i have about the contemporary world but i know that chances are we'll be fine (laughs) so there is this sense of survival that kicks in as well i mean i don't feel i'm selling this film very well because i actually do really like it i i really think it's very visually interesting but i do find that their their sense of Oh, just frustration. And I suppose the, the tiredness we can all relate to where mm-hmm. we're like, I'm just going to keep going and see what happens. They're going through this with the sense of the vampire condition. Mm-hmm. They have lost, at least temporarily, they've lost that spark of what makes it really great to be a vampire. Mm-hmm. You know, because they do grapple with concepts around suicide and about mm-hmm. ending it all. And sometimes that's sort of value that self-parody of the great creator who can no longer burden his genius and must mm. kill himself. But I think as well, there's also a sense of if they, if, if we're creating this material and nobody else can really truly appreciate it or understand it, then why am I burdened with this creation? Mm. And I think that that's the stress and the frustration we have in our central, our central couple. Um, so I've mostly spoken about, um, about Adam, um, mm-hmm. Tom Hiddleston's character, but equally Eve, the uh, always ethereally amazing Tilda Swinton. Oh, she, a goddess oh, in our midst. Yeah, she really is. She really is. I mean, mm. she is, she is a stunner in every sense. And I mean, ridiculously talented. She is so 
insightful and and alive funnily mm-hmm. enough paradoxically perhaps in playing this vampire she really captures that sense of the excitement of of, of understanding cr- creativity and understanding great thinkers and great philosophy and discussing books and the things that make people like you and i terribly excited but she does it in a way where we kind of feel that she is the only hope for this to have any sense of of it mattering because in the hands of the creative destructive artist like adam it's only a matter of time before he'll he will he will expire from this earth one way or the other she's the one who sort of sense and reason and control and logic and emotional sort of clarity i felt that she was she was the rock of reason in this film in many respects absolutely and also a sense of one of the things that i found very beautifully expressed visually is her sense of creative curiosity and not yeah. feeling burdened by it or creating additional, you know, additional steps for herself in the way that I think it's very expressed with technology, but also mm-hmm. uh, very in a in a slightly comedic way. The mm-hmm. way that Adam is always tinkering with analog versions for things <laughs> that could be made so much simpler. The fact that he connects <laughs> his phone, <laughs> ca- his phone camera through uh, like three different devices onto his very old 1950s TV while she's just looking through her iPhone. (laughs) It's just very, very, very funny visual language. But what mostly struck me about Eve was the fact that she is so happy to have, she seems so genuinely thrilled and constantly curious to have all of this time to luxuriate and all mm. the the objects and the art that she loves and i love 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 the scene where she's packing to go visit adam and there is a whole montage of her deciding and just touching the books and it's books mm. in different languages i mean obviously you know in the same way as i think that there's no straight vampire because it's just incongruous to me the idea that vampires could only speak one language also seems bizarre but this is probably one of the few visual ways that i've seen represented of a vampire kind of not genuinely loving something that's not a person that's just culture and these objects that clearly mean so much to her and they're books yes yeah you're right i mean i'm trying to think right now i can't really think off the top of my mind of any other vampire films straight away where they're not if they're obsessed with an object it's usually an object that extends their power mm-hmm. or does something around their um immortality or or it is attached to a person so yeah the idea that she's sitting there literally loving loving the books the way you would feel any any academic would or indeed any sort of you know just bibliophile would in the sense that they are they're companions on your journey. You know, they're much more than just, you know, um, ink and paper. I think that's really, it's very romantic. But as I say, and I feel that, again, linking it back to Byzantium in a sense that, you know, you feel that there's there's something very seductive about the the ability to pass on knowledge through the mm-hmm. written word for thousands of years. It's kind of like folklore. It's kind of like vampirism. It passes on and extends through. So we can see why you'd have it protected in the image that we got from Byzantium mm. with the, the long room hub and how it's guarded as a secret. Mm. But then in her case, it's everywhere. It's all around us. It's, it's, uh, she's, I mean, in the, in the, I'm thinking of the images in particular where the, he's, his, Jeremiah's camera is really interested in situating Eve in her space and she's piles of books just everywhere yes. 
they're just God. absolutely everywhere it's kind of like i almost can't get enough there's there's so much knowledge in the world and i can't possibly consume it all um and that's i i get that i kind of feel like that the first day of annual leave it's like oh my god there's so much i can't wait to read you know but, what you on know. a purely personal level as i was re-watching this film last night i was looking at it's like you know what if i was turned into a vampire tonight this is exactly yeah. what i would be doing i'd just yeah. be lounging around on my on my four story bed <laughs> And in my surround- fabulous Tangier's home, yeah. yes, reading oh, every book know, I can get my hand on. Also, just in my Dalston flat, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to fill this up with even more books because now time is not an issue. <laughs> well, that's true. If you don't feel time is an issue, or indeed that you have to earn a living in a sense mm-hmm. that you don't have to go out and work to pay bills, if you feel that you can luxuriate in this, I think we'd all, in some way, give in to those immediate impulses to listen to loads of music create something write something yeah I, I think so and on that note actually what do you think about the way that this film kind of builds such a a massive cultural tapestry because there's a lot of both visual and uh, named references to musicians to artists to filmmakers mm-hmm to to writers kind of it feels uh, i read in a in a review somewhere that it feels like a very curated film yeah it reminded me funnily enough of a novel um uh called i vampire by michael romke where Mm -hmm. in this novel it's very similar in the sense we have an a, a normal character or everyday human character who is brought into this world of vampires and vampires the vampire world is all full of celebrities so you've got Mozart, you've got Shakespeare, you've got, you know, all of these figures throughout history. You've got um, uh, Dostoevsky and, you know, um, and then a couple of really interesting villains as well from history too. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about it was that you kind of thought it's a world of privilege. And I mean, really, really powerful privilege because this is the privilege of being as I say, blessed with this vision of creation and curiosity. What I liked about this was that it seems like Jarmusch is creating his own personal idealized (laughs) version of these spaces and texts and artifacts that he seems to really have an appreciation for that. It's Mm -hmm. it's a very personalized vision of these kind of comments around music and, and literature i mean not so much film i must admit but yeah. there are there are a couple of moments but n- nothing nothing that particularly stands out in comparison with the, with the fascination mm-hmm. with music um and then i suppose even thinking about the idea about vinyl and old technology you know old technology comes back in vogue in different ways so it is about the idea of the 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 fire that it lights in our imagination, the even older technology, it does become something that becomes fetishized as well. I'm thinking of like the how LPs came back into fashion as well. And mm-hmm. they have a richness of sound that you can't seem to replicate in any other technological medium. So I think that's really interesting that we kind of vampires are their own, they are stuck in their own time, but they are, they endure. There's something unique about them in that sense. And there's also this yeah. idea throughout the film of vampires, or maybe particularly just these these three vampires that were actually the creators of a lot of 
of our greatest cultural um cultural moments. And I want to talk a little bit about the character of Christopher Marlowe, who's played yes. here by John Hurt, with, uh, who you know Hurt, yes. <laughs> even in this film kind of taps into that that conspiracy theory. I guess conspiracy theory is, is not really the the appropriate way of calling something that has a lot of academic study behind it. Uh <laughs> that Marlowe was actually the person who wrote a lot, if not all, of Shakespeare's work. Uh, and yeah. here the film pretty much like says that. And and also Eve and Adam are, you know, they're presented as the actual creative forces behind a lot of human achievements. So I guess my question is kind of how do you think of, how do you feel about um real life culture intersecting with this vampire world, specifically through Christopher Marlowe? I, I think I've, I've well I laughed when the first time I heard of it yeah of course because again it goes back to that example I gave about Romke you know the idea of the best among the best and the brightest among us are the most ambitious or the most creative to charge like Michelangelo mm. etc of course they're vampires because they are the pinnacle of human achievement or the, the literature that they produce is so inspired it could only have been brought upon by the influence of angels or devils so yeah I can understand that of course that, that would, again <laughs> it, it forms that lovely elite group that I suppose if we if any of us could be part of something like that we would we would be so we, we would be surrounded by so much genius you know we we love seeing this in human culture where there's sort of the inner sanctum of people who know who are in on the maybe the conspiracy theory but equally maybe the the room where it happens the power or the 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 influence and the control i think someone like marlo he plays with that he makes it quite amusing yes of course you know okay i wrote those plays i gave him a, a hand i think it's interesting though that even though they bestow these gifts if you will cultural gifts on humanity they still remove themselves from humanity so it's like literally a sort of a version of manna from heaven it's kind of like it's a sprinkling of fairy dust mm -hmm. to say this is i'm sharing this gift with you and do with it what you will and it, and how humankind takes it up and how it sustains itself through human culture afterwards it's kind of like the legacy of uh, of of any kind of creative uh, endeavor how it mm. how it comes to pass in human culture depends on who's doing the reading and who's thinking about it three or four hundred years from now so i think i think with marlo it's funny and it's, it's sad as well i always find this quite a sad film to watch because one of john john hart's last films mm -hmm. as well but the fact that he's such a I, there's something so roguish about him in this there's mm -hmm. something so delightfully inspiring about it that it makes you think yeah, the creative ones are amongst us. They are the ones who look like they would be sitting around strange cafes in Tangier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly where you'd find Marlowe. He wouldn't be wouldn't be locked up in the British Library or anything like that. So there is an, a there is a sort of a uh, what would you call it? it it's, it's kind of like that cultural kind of um, wandering emotion, never fully creatively fulfilled kind of character. Mm -hmm. I do find that he's like that. But the fact that he and Eve have such a lovely paternalistic relationship, I find that, I mean, yes, it is more, it's, I suppose it's not fully paternalistic, but it is emotionally kind of conceived of in those in that way in the, in the framing. Mm -hmm. I do think that they, that there is something transformative in their relationship because once he passes, she really gets that urge to then find her joie de vivre. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense of survival, not just creative consumption, but survival. That really gets knocked forward, of course, once once uh, once he passes away in the film. And we haven't really spoken about the way that um, 
the visual language of vampirism in this film. Mm. And I found, I remember it vaguely, but I found it very distinctly, um, very distinctly the visual language of how addiction is also portrayed in cinema, very specifically kind of heroin. So I was wondering kind of what your thoughts were on how, how the, the, the reality, the, the, the blood rituals of being a vampire are presented in the film. Well, I, I, what struck me straight away was the the reaction of you know, uh, yes, there's discussion of purity and stuff, which again, of course, make you think of of heroin or or, or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 that you require a huge amount to sort of the purer it is, the more amazing it is, or the more more likely it is to sustain you. I love the. Um, and that ties in again with the the image that we again see of of Adam. He has that sort of wasted away genius rock star look going mm-hmm, on that does make mm-hmm. you, of course, think of heroin. Um, but there is also again that craving that you find where they're trying to be ethical. I always thought that was an interesting thing. They're trying to be ethical consumers of blood, sourcing clean blood. Fine, that's grand. You can see why in the contemporary context, and especially in terms of a drug context. But I did think that there was something interesting about the, there's something very humane about that. Like they don't want to have to kill. They will if they have to, but they don't want to. There's a a sense of being, again, having a sort of a a liberal left ethical purpose, I suppose, Mm -hmm. Um, trying not to be part so much of the drug trade or not trying to infect others, but rather just to, 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 to procure what you need. It's interesting then when, of course, Eve's sister comes into the picture because, of course, she ruins everything and she she helps explode out this this problem and, and that in, in enables them to 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 break out of their comfort zones and actually have to deal with the problem. So um, I like the fact, though, it's it, there's moments in, I think, particularly with Eve, when she kind of stares longingly or indeed, you know, kind of her, hmm. she gets that, that really interesting sort of twitchy upper lip that you just go right that there is there is a craving there that never fully dies which mm-hmm. of course fits perfectly into the vampire narrative what about yourself you definitely said you picked up something quite specific on the heroin image there totally in fact i think <clears throat> um in the first scenes when even the overhead shots the way that they're filmed of that that high and every time they consume blood it's mm. i think it's filmed very very distinctly as a mm. as a drug high and it really reminded me almost of particular images from train spotting i guess cuz that's one of the oh, most yeah. iconic yeah. portrayals of of heroin addiction um but obviously this is this is a type of addiction that has no consequences you know they never they never even though they're addicts they they do actually need it to survive and there is no way of fixing it mm-hmm. um there is just control but even all of their you know their day to day is entirely marked by kind of the, the images of what we of what we think kind of addicts would behave like or what we've seen in movies you know mm-hmm. they 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 chat um obviously they're incredibly uh well-read, incredibly well-traveled and smart, but it's that armchair philosophy that you were referencing mm-hmm. before. It's kind of aimless chat. It's not going, it's not productive, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's not creating yes. anything. It's just chit-chat. Yes. And then they, they get high, they enjoy the high, and they sort of fall asleep, and they're all, you know, they're beautiful and languid and stuff, but if you strip away the um, the supernatural elements, the vampirism, yeah. The imagery, I think, is almost exactly the same as in any kind of 
drug romance film. You know, I think a lot about I, it really reminded me of this film with Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish. It's an Australian film. Oh, it's a it's a film from 2006 called Candy. And oh. it it's essentially about a, a drug addicted couple. Right. And but a lot of the film is spent on the kind of the honeymoon phase of their addiction where it does feel like a heightened version of reality mm-hmm. and it's very sunshiny it's very free-flowing and it's very kind of romantic in a way but the underlying knowledge is that it's it's manufactured because it's all it's all in the high mm-hmm. and in the same way here kind of they it's 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 tapping into images that we're really familiar with but obviously we're kind of taking away all the all the darkness from it in a way because it's just it's they're supernatural creatures so the rules of addiction kind of don't apply to them in the same way yeah i suppose i mean again the the idea of the ethically sourcing of it as well Mm. you're not uh you're not polluting your outer you know your outer realm the community or whatever you're not bringing social problems in with it it seems to be something that is very clinical and very Mm -hmm. um procured in a very isolated sense so i think that you know from the social dynamic aspect of it it's kind of like what we imagine jim morrison was doing Mm -hmm. in the late 1960s i'm writing songs i'm getting high and i'm a poet and i'm you know changing the world and 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 that might seem naive but Mm -hmm. another way you kind of go it's deeply romantic way to live it's Mm -hmm. the artist's dream in that sense so i can see why it's both very enticing but it's also it needs the the cloak of vampirism mm-hmm. in a way to show up its falsity mm-hmm. to show up that it it's really not in the in the gift of human existence to just do this because mm-hmm. we don't have limitless time mm-hmm. so and um, we need as uh, as you said yourself there's unproductive chat yeah of course there is but that's the, the the i think part of the human drive is to in some ways however you quantify it to be productive because mm-hmm. you want to be able to say in whatever you do i was here and i mattered mm-hmm. and this is why we have cave paintings people have done this to say <laughs> i was here and i mattered but you know these vampires don't have to worry about that they are here they endure they still matter at least in the way that they consume and bring forward the knowledge of the past into the contemporary moment and this is i think one of the interesting things that marlo is struggling with in the film mm-hmm. this is what he's struggling with is this idea of it just continues on you know and i do think there's a point though and this is something that rice has in her series as well Mm -hmm. is that vampires they come to a point where they just go unending life is unbearable because it's kind of like too much pleasure and too much pain it needs you need the diversity in order to have a fully rounded existence Mm -hmm. and i think that you really don't know the sweetness of pleasure if you don't know the sourness of pain so it is something to do with that balance and they are even visually on screen they are always representing this kind of interesting balance she in white he in black quite Mm -hmm. literally yin and yang on screen the way that they're filmed in those hazy moments that you described they do look like yin yin and yang especially when there's 360 um 360 sort of shots of them from above mm-hmm. that make you think like wow they do look like they're sort of in this encircling of time mm-hmm. it has that cosmic relevance so i think it's there i think everything that we've discussed is in the dna of it totally how the film has a a lasting impact in terms of the way it represents vampirism sort of partially kind of a self-indulgent idea around creative knowledge and power partially to boredom also to beauty and ethereal sort of mm-hmm. complexity 
I don't know. I, I, I think in some ways it's going to be seen as a beautiful piece of art house cinema mm-hmm. that, you know, has, has a fantastic cast, but at the same time, I don't know about its, I don't know about its lasting impact. I, I, and I say that really, cause I don't know how, does it feel like it's had its moment? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I feel like if anything, and as I mentioned before, it feels more impactful watching it after having spent a year in lockdown yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and having been essentially, well, a lot of us been forced to be by ourselves in isolation and also contemplate a lot of these things. And one thing that I kind of picked up from from this film, kind of not to you know go back to the parallels of addiction, is this idea of they do not suffer the consequences yes, of yes. their actions, mm-hmm. which is also something that you know the idea of social responsibility and stuff is something we've been really thinking about, or you know I hope we've been thinking about <laughs> through this whole panini. But it's you know even when Ava, the sister Mia Wasikowska's character, when she essentially quote unquote ODs. Yeah. on Ian, on Anton Yelchin's character, he's the one who perishes. He's yes. the one who dies. She just, yeah. she is happily kind of, you know, floating around and causes destruction and chaos, but she herself is not affected. Mm-hmm. And and when Marlo dies, it's it's also, you know, arguably because he had a bad a bad batch. You know, mm-hmm. he, they literally say they had a, he had like poisoned blood. But there is a sense of ceremony and of 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 um of it being a funeral that he is ready to go. So there's the there is yeah. I don't know if you if I'm just reading too much into it. No, no I I got so. I got a sense that maybe that was he had done it on purpose because he was he was done. There was nothing else yeah. he wanted to do. Or that you know you're at the point where you kind of go if this is it so be it you mm-hmm. know that there's nothing I've reached the end of what I feel I can offer and if this is i mean yeah we get the bad batch story but again Mm -hmm. as you say it could very well be the case of well even if he knew it would he have done anything any differently Mm -hmm. you know it's funny it spoke to you in terms of the lockdown piece Mm -hmm. but what spoke to me is what i suppose in byzantium and it shows what we're kind of thinking about and that is Mm -hmm. that i've been dying to get back to ireland so i've been (laughs) looking at byzantium going i just want to go back to the island i want to go back to the magical red island so for me that's exactly what it made me think of that Mm -hmm. sort of uh, the inability to move (laughs) out you know in that international sense so it's funny what it's bringing out in us as viewers at this time totally and and kind of um, I love that you bring up kind of the idea of landscape and stuff because this film sits really interesting in comparison mm-hmm. to Byzantium because Byzantium is very open like you mentioned mm-hmm. the uh, the landscape and the way that it uses nature and this uh, only lovers only lovers after life is pretty much entirely done in closed rooms or very very um very industrial landscapes or in Tangiers in these sort of like corridor like tiny streets so yeah. it's one kind of yeah. how do you think the the locations and the spaces play into the film i loved the fact that it was in some ways a very indoors film i mean the the space of detroit has this sort of really interesting wasteland this post-industrial post-capitalist space that has just been drained of all of its vitality or all of its natural life it's a perfect metaphor for vampirism of course a vampire would live there Mm -hmm. because you endure on but there's that initial i suppose that's that which makes you human is Mm -hmm. gone you are now a a supernatural i wouldn't say husk because tom Tom hiddleston's not hard on the eyes or anything but you know he is definitely (laughs) he's no frank langella 
But even then, the fact that he's resuscitating the technology mm -hmm. that shows you that he's committed to a past, a life of the past that he's trying to bring up to date, but he can't. Well, he's humorously going to do it, but in in a way that Detroit, ha its its best days are behind it. In this mm -hmm. in this film, it sees Detroit as somewhere that is dangerous, is you know, is is post-industrialist, but also something that is in some ways past its best moments past its its pinnacle and i think that this is how adam feels when he's in the film he, he, he when he's at the beginning of the film he feels like he's past that pinnacle moment even though he's creating music he has that idea of creation versus the desire of fame or indeed the the reception of fame mm -hmm. this is something that he struggles with so do you create something or do you do it for economic or 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 uh, you know sort of impactful reasons like that i think when the case of eve it's much more about that European romance of to to literally sort of you know give in to creation and I'm thinking of all those romance you know those romantic figures in sort of eighteenth century literature you know just that idea of almost like what we imagine Byron's existence was like you know you travel and you you know you create and you consume and you you have that sense of um creativity is your job i do feel that she's like that in terms of you're meeting great minds you're, you're you're discovering new spaces and in tangier it's this gateway between africa and europe and i do feel that you know that space is very deliberately sort of looking at um the expression the expansion of vampirism between europe and africa and this cultural exchange it's like this kind of crossroads of the world and i thought that was really interesting because detroit is post-industrialist mm. it's past and this and hers is sort of looking at the kind of the crossroads of the future, which is between sort of European and Pan-African influence. I thought that was something very interesting. Mm -hmm. in that. Absolutely. Before we bring in both of the films together, <laughs> is there any other aspect of Only Lovers of the Life that you feel we haven't touched upon that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I was just thinking one of the things it was nice to see Anton Yelchin in that. Obviously, oh, yeah. he's um, uh, this and, uh, and Green Room, I think, is another great film that he was in. You know, it, it's, it's such a such a sad talent to have lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that in terms of the visual aspects of the film, it's such a Jim Jarmusch film, mm -hmm. for better or worse. And I think that it, I, I think your feelings towards maybe his cinema might indeed help you contextualize how Only Lovers Left Alive works for you. But it is a very a very artistic, beautiful uh, vampire film, not about death and destruction and sex and power, but mm -hmm. rather about creativity, inspiration, um, how we, how, if we really could be vampires, what would we really do with that mm -hmm. gift if we didn't want to just pillage and take over countries? So, you know, I think there's something quite nice in the imaginative spaces that it creates on screen. Yes, it feels yeah. almost, almost very down to earth despite being very ethereal and very domestic in some ways it is very domestic i suppose it is about you and your sweetie just mm. living out eternity and how yeah. do you how do you guys balance each other out you know in that way and in that sense it's it's very it's very sweet in a in a world where so much vampire cinema in particular is all about death and destruction and mm -hmm. exploitation and sex and violence it is very it's the opposite of that it's very um contained and emotionally emotionally interesting within a very contained narrative and i think that's very much expressed in the geography we see on screen mm -hmm. they're all contained spaces it's not about the vampires expanse it's about their internal world inflect reflected in those landscapes mm. and to bring both of these films together they mm. came out fairly around the same time and mm -hmm. 
Byzantium had, a, I think, a little bit less of a of a cultural ripple effect, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering, what do you think, or where do you see the influence of both of these films and the way that they approach vampires, which is, you know, very different as we've been discussing for the past hour. But uh, concerning when they came out, do you see any influence from these films on on other vampire products? That's interesting. I mean, I would see them very much as in at the time in which they were made, they're responding to different issues around the popularity of the vampire at that time. The vampire story, mm-hmm. I mean, you have, you know, when Maura Breffney's play, A Vampire Story, came out in 08, that was very timely because in 08 we had also the all the Twilight stuff. We also had the beginning of True Blood. We also had Let the Right One In mm-hmm. and, and, and its various remakes to come. So we have... All of this kind of vampires are everywhere in the in, in the culture at that time. Mm-hmm. And then the ripple effect out of that, the, the films and texts that it has produced, are very much counter narratives to the stuff that we find in those bigger tales like Twilight and True Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all about vampires live amongst us or is alongside us and we fall in love with them or whatever. Whereas in Only Lovers Left Alive, it is about that separation. We are in parallel existence, but we don't actually engage with the humans really. We are we're living this very privileged parallel life in Byzantium. It's all about, yeah, but are we giving, are we still dealing with the politics and the dynamics around women having their own autonomy in every sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how that's, that, that, that is still being questioned. And that's something you find in the texts equally in something like True Blood or not True Blood, uh, Twilight. Mm-hmm. You know, we find those, those issues around female autonomy and power and control. So I think they're talking about things that we have always talked about in relation to vampire cinema, but it's, it's their, the way that those two films since Byzantium and and Only Lovers Left Alive have rippled out, mm. I think it's quite it's quite it's not as evident to me at the moment now that I'm thinking of it as other texts would be. I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose you've a little sense of that play with it in something like um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, the television series. Mm-hmm. We do see a little bit of that sort of sense of when they're sitting around their house, their their house in Staten Island. There is a sense of lack of production. Mm-hmm. They don't do very much. Um, but that's kind of the pleasure of it. You know, they're kind of like, it's kind of like sitting around with your mates, not wor- not worrying about being productive because, mm-hmm. you know, why would you have to worry about that? Um, so they're, and, and they're again, their inability or perhaps lack of desire to be up to date. That's just, that. that's a whole ongoing joke in the vampire world anyway. Mm-hmm. I think Byzantium, in a way, it's a pity it didn't have the resonance that would one would have liked it to have. I think because I think in some ways it could have been just an issue around marketing, that it's that it that it is a film that combines Anglo-Irish imagery as opposed to sort of the more grandiose American imagery. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the marketing that might not necessarily have translated very well. Um I also think as well that with Only Lovers Left Alive it has that Jarmouche art house aesthetic that would naturally draw in a crowd interested in what Jarmusch is doing um, as opposed to just another vampire story mm-hmm. filtered through the director's eyes it, it, it will attract its own sort of audience but I think Byzantium has been academically it has been considered and reconsidered mm-hmm. by scholars like myself and other people we've thought about how it's um, a companion piece in J- Jordan cinema mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that you know time will tell how this has actually worked out but it's nice to have a female vampire story 
that that does not focus necessarily on on uh, spectacularizing the body, but mm-hmm. rather actually thinking about you know freedom and intellectual freedom and also freedom of uh, of the soul. You know that they're beyond patriarchal power. So that's that may be the the, the lasting legacy it has. Yeah, and I'd love for people to revisit Byzantium a bit more because I definitely think it it deserves a bit more attention. I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said that the Jermush audience, the art house audience, mm. would go and watch this because it's a Jermush film, which would go and watch Only Lovers of Life because it's a Jermush film. And also it has the benefit of being made around the time where Hiddlemania was at its peak and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> everybody just wanted to watch Tom Hiddleston do anything. That man could have made, you know, a three hour film about him watching a fly on a wall and people would have bought, bought tickets for it. And obviously Tilda Swinton is a, a you know, an incredible presence and oh, also an has icon. her own, Yeah, and has her own audience. The fact that it's a vampire film almost seemed um an excuse. Secondary. Yes, yeah. totally secondary. Yeah. Whether it's uh, you know, Saoirse Ronan obviously has become much bigger since then and Gemma Ardenton is always a, also a very recognized actress but I think that, that that tapping into what people might be interested to see at that time was mm-hmm. not really on the side of Byzantium and yeah. because our preconceptions of um, you know I'm trying to excuse why a film did not have the resonance that it, I thought it should have had in 2012 but you yeah. know that that our idea that you mentioned before of female vampires are supposed to be like this and yeah. that using that to market Byzantium is prob- would probably have been a mistake because it really does not play into that at all and no, it no. it goes in a completely different way and it's I guess the expectations from of a Neil Jordan vampire film after something as seminal and influential as Into the Vampire would have also been sky high because I don't think I I think it's the same kind of audience but I can see that the expectations would would potentially deceive an audience that was expecting something along the lines of the the kind of the gothic sexiness Mm. of Interview with a Vampire it's not as glossy I think Mm. that's one of the things because Interview with a Vampire one thing it really has going for it is that it is very glossy Mm -hmm. and and that's not a criticism so much as it is the aesthetic makeup of the film it Mm -hmm. is quite beautiful and arresting and it does have this sort of huge not only star power but it also has that huge sense of expectation that came with that film when it came out Mm -hmm. so with Byzantium it felt like something that almost took you by surprise Mm -hmm. and then you kind of went oh okay and then when you watched it you kind of went right it's not exactly what I was expecting but then you don't kind of know what were you expecting Mm -hmm. this is where I think Neil Jordan is the kind of director that does manage to surprise you no matter what he makes because you always think you have an idea of what his stuff is and it's only when he produces something new that you kind Mm. of go oh he's he's always challenging and evolving just that little way that little bit in a direction that you can't fully anticipate what I love about Byzantium though is that it does function as a film in its own right absolutely it has a very logical narrative very very strong performances i like the fact it mixes up anglo-irish culture mm-hmm. it brings out the very much the idea as i say of the blackpool and brighton spaces and then contrasts that that kind of sort of seedy um apologies if you're a native of any of those places but you know that sort of underbelly and the the danger of being at the edge of the water the culture at the edge of the water the carnival space all of that stuff and mixes that up with not only traditional power in terms of patriarchy but also again mixes that up with 
mythological spaces and places as you get with the island, which definitely stands in for sort of Irish culture. So with all of that in mind, I do think that the film actually has a lot more going on underneath. And that's what you see with the mm-hmm. second and third viewing than at your the first glance where it might feel a bit sort of about tempestuous female vampires and mm-hmm. the men who try to keep them in, in line. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a lot more going on underneath that surface. And, and for that, that's why I think Jordan's ability to kind of foreground those narratives that we don't always take the time to listen to. I think that's what makes it a special film. Serka, thank you so much for all of your time and all of your incredible insight into both of these films. Thank you. And where can people find more of your work online? Ah, so if you're interested, I've been uh, very busy over the last few years writing mm-hmm. about vampires, of course, as always, and I continue to do so. Uh, so I have Postmodern Vampires, Film, Fiction and Popular Culture, which is a book out with Palgrave Macmillan, mm-hmm. um, published in 2019. You'll see that George W. Bush and Lady and Lady Liberty are on the cover. <laughs> and uh, most recently, uh, but in, in late 2020, um, I edit, I co-edited a volume with Xavier Aldana Reyes for the British Library called Visions of the Vampire, 200 Years of Immortal Tales. And that looks at vampire narratives from across the world, um, looking at various different ways in which the vampire has manifest. Some lost stories that have been republished for the first time in, in several decades and some familiar ones in there as well. So perfect vampire reading, uh, a vampire primer for you if you want to read some interesting undead fiction. And an absolutely gorgeous edition. I, I still you. have yes, it on gorgeous. my <laughs> I still have it right next to my bedside. Yes, the BL did an absolutely beautiful job on that. And it's quite affordable as well. Um and mm-hmm. usually academic books are, are are not the cheapest things, but in the cast question of this, the, the BL have done a really beautiful production mm-hmm. uh of this book and it's it's quite affordable as well. You get it. At the and that's it for this episode of the Final Girls Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It genuinely helps a lot. And if you want to find out more about what we do, go to thefinalgirls.co.uk where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter for newly commissioned original essays and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at thefinalgirls.uk. As I mentioned at the start, if you can, please head over to patreon.com forward slash the final girls, where we will be posting bonus episodes and other goodies. You can also follow Circa on Twitter at Vampire Circa, and I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we've got our last full episode of the vampire season, where we will be covering A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and What We Do in the Shadows. But don't worry, vampire obsessives, we've also got a couple of bonus episodes in the works.